Hi everyone, today is February 6th, 2020. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. Our guest today is Steve Small. Hi, Steve. Hi. He is professor and dean of the School of Behavioral and Brain Sciences at the University of Texas at Dallas. He's a neurologist and computer scientist who uses imaging and computational modeling to study the anatomy and physiology of the human brain and its relation to function by direct investigation of human subjects, particularly in the area of speech and language. Um, around the room, we've got Nicole Wicha. Hi there. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And we've got a new friend, Rosie Norman. Hi, Rosie. Hello. She's from UT Health down the road. Um, okay, great. So I want to start with this idea that so much of the way we think about the functional organization of the brain is, is premised on the work of neurologists like yourself who map the effects of focal brain dysfunction onto specific behaviors. And I, this is especially true for language disorders. I'm not sure about which came first, the motor stuff or the language stuff. We can talk about that. Where it was really clear that a loss of a particular aspect of speech correlated directly with the loss of a particular brain region. So it seems like all of early medical uh, science has primed us to think in terms of localization of function to structures or systems. But how, how well, in your estimation, has this idea served us in understanding the organizational principles of the human brain and its relation to behavior and cognition? Well, thanks. Um, thanks for asking. It's, uh, um, it's an important foundation for everything that we study now. So um, in the 19th century, uh, we didn't have a lot of the technology we have now. So the only way um, to study the relation between brain organization and behavior was through uh, brain damage. Um, and as I pointed out earlier today when we spoke, um, uh, there are no animal models for language in the brain. So unlike motor system, unlike visual system, it's uh, very hard to make inferences about how the brain might work with respect to language um, other than looking at um, people who have damage to their brain. So this foundation that started in the 19th century, carried through the 20th century, has been extremely influential. In the 19th century, they were really good at anatomy. Um, they weren't so good at psychology. In the 20th century, um, in the uh, mid, mid to later 20th century, psychology became well elaborated. Various uh, um, approaches to psychology changed, um, and the whole field of, uh, of uh, cognitive psychology, information processing psychology, led us to a very um, a deeper understanding of behavior. And so um, we went from really great anatomy in the 19th century. Uh, to really great psychology in the 20th century. And now in the 21st, we're trying to put them together. And um, uh, we can put them together uh, in, in novel ways. And we can also um, use new technologies to move beyond the um, uh, infer inference of brain function from lesions of the brain. So I just wonder if, because uh, it's not just language. Everywhere I look, somebody is telling me what part of the brain does what. If I go home and I tell my relatives that I work on the basal ganglia, they say, oh, yeah, what does it do? It's, I don't think that we have a way of talking about the brain other than to localize behavioral functions in different parts of the brain. Well, it's a lot easier um, to 
to take take uh, an approach that is a one-to-one -one mapping um, between function and structure. So if I if I say the, that, that there's a one-to-one -one mapping between structure and function, it's it's easier to make inferences. It's easier to understand. It's easier to explain. The problem is that um, as as I mean, a couple of you guys in the room are cellular molecular biologists, you know that the connectivity within the brain is massive. And so there's no one area of the brain that's doing anything without influences of many other areas of the brain. And, but the explanatory mechanisms we have for delving into that um, are, are still uh, in progress. And we still need better, better um, methods of description. And we need better ways of analyzing that complex connectivity so that we know. Um, uh, uh, you were pointing out earlier, uh, earlier today um, that um, the basal ganglia has massive connections to various parts of where you're talking about the thalamus, you're talking about other areas within the basal ganglia, um, and we know the cortex. And so to say the basal ganglia does um, one thing, um, the basal ganglia does motor control or the basal ganglia does a, a single function is, is neglecting the interactions that are taking place between the basal ganglia and the thalamus or between the basal ganglia and the cortex or between the area different parts of the basal ganglia. And the same is true in language. Um, to say that um, the, the front part of the brain which traditionally has been thought to be an engine of speech because of focal lesions. When you have a focal lesion in the left front part of the brain, you have speech problems, um, uh, output problems. Um, but to say that that part of the brain does output um, or does speech or does production, whatever way you want to look at it, um, is missing the fact that, uh, number one, um, there are other kinds of disorders uh, that are produced by lesions in that area. The people with lesions in that area can do a lot of, of uh, language production kinds of things, but not all of them. Um, and um, uh, the real live ecologic behaviors uh, depend on that region and its communication with, with other regions. Um, we now think, in fact, most of us think, that uh, Broca's area, this famous area, um, which consists of the, um, the back two parts of the uh, inferior frontal gyrus, uh, the pars triangularis in the middle, uh, the pars opercularis is the back, that those two, um, uh, uh, those, those, those two parts of the inferior frontal lobe are considered Broca's area, that Broca's area is not a region devoted to language that that region probably is involved in other kinds of sequencing functions or other kinds of you know, higher order um, um, processes for language and a host of other kinds of behaviors. Um, and that it's the interaction between that area and areas in the premotor cortex, areas in the temporal lobe, areas in the inferior parietal lobule um, that, are, that enable the brain to produce language. Um, in fact, um, just in the last decade, uh, 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 a, con a connection between that inferior um, uh, Broca's area, that, that, uh, that portion of the inferior frontal lobe, um, there's a connection between that area and the supplementary motor area. We know the supplementary motor area is crucial for sequencing, for initiating um, actions of all type. And you can't initiate 
um, language actions, really, without probably involving supplementary motor areas. So if you're looking now at the, the network for uh, language production, um, we're no longer looking at the 19th century uh, Wernicke Broca kind of connection. We're now looking at a more complex network that includes supplementary motor area, includes temporal and inferparietal regions. So um, it's a long winded answer, but, but it's uh, complex. It does seem that we almost don't have a language to describe how the brain makes language. So we could talk about, I could say to, to somebody, well, every part of the brain is involved in everything you do, so quit thinking about localization function at all. Or I could say, well, there's a part of the brain that's responsible for you winking your right eye and another part that's for your left sure. eye and break the brain down that way. But if it's something in between, I, I don't really know how to talk it's hard about to talk that. About it. So we, it's hard you to know. teach it, too. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really hard to teach it, too, because it's, it's a difficult topic, I found, at least, trying to get students to understand that, yeah, there's parts of the brain that are engaged in these certain behaviors, but at the same time, they're they're not sufficient or necessary necessarily, and so it's really hard to get them into this idea. So, so one of the tools that's now, um, it's giving way to other tools, but, but the one that was pretty popular over the last five to eight years is using graph theory to try. Graph theory is unfortunately quite static. And, um, and as we were mentioning uh, before the podcast started, even um, a lot of the action now is in dynamic behaviors. Um, but if you look at uh, graph theory is a way to try to explain that. So to say, um, it, I, I personally believe a lot of areas of the brain are involved in language, but I don't think it's unstructured. I don't think it's, um, uh, I don't think it's not, not, uh, it's not, I don't believe it's, that it's impossible to study. Um, and I think if we, if we find languages like graph theory um, of the last few years, there are new approaches that are more dynamic. Um, but let's just say graph theory because it's been out there for a while. There's some really great um, uh, mathematicians, physicists, and neuroscientists who have articulated various theories related to this. Um, and um, the um, in terms of graph theory, you you have to first determine a level of description. Level of description could be the neuron. Level of description could be a voxel in a brain imaging experiment. A voxel's 1,000 to 10,000 neurons, roughly, um, depending on how, how big it is. And that's a voxel is a volume element in an MRI study. Um, it could be a region. I showed regions. That's a little bit um, less granular than probably it would be ideal um, uh, uh, because regions are quite large um, and they vary across people a lot. But you, you take a level of description, and then whatever uh, level of description you choose, um, the, entity, um, the entities are considered nodes in a graph theoretic system. And the node could be a neuron, the node could be a voxel, the node could be a region. Node could be a hemisphere or a big region um, uh, so or a nucleus. When, and, you, when and, you get into this node language, though, I mean, are you verging back onto modularity again, or is it still a distributed network? I mean, do we still have... No, so these nodes are, uh, there can be anywhere between two nodes, left and right hemisphere, to 10 billion nodes, which is the number of neurons. You, you, you fix the level of description, and then you describe the relationship among the nodes. And the relationship among um, the nodes in a structural way is now, considered, is now called a structural connectome. 
which is a very individualized structure. It's the basis of some personalized medicine approaches. You can use this functional connectome, which is a, a set of relations that are built on covariance structures or correlational structures uh, in act, act, activity across these, these nodes. But then you develop, um, you, you develop uh, descriptions based on graph theory of what's connected to what, and there are graph theoretic measures you can use. The simplest one is degree of a node. How many connections are there? And there are other ones, how many, how many pathways from X to Y go through your node? Or um, is your node part of a, what you're, uh, you're saying to call a module? Um, and, and a module is simply a, um, a, a, a set of nodes where the connections among those are greater than the connections uh, uh, across others. And, um, uh, but, but the number of modules in the brain depends on the level of description. And it depends on, on how you look at it. And I actually believe that, um, that this graph, this static graph, graph theoretic language is going to give way to a much more dynamic one. And we already are seeing, um, I showed one example in my talk today, but the um, functional, um, the, the, there are various time-space analyses that will show how networks will change over the course of time. Um, and, and that's going to be much more valuable. Um, so you know, Nicole, because you study language like I do, um, that if you do an experiment with functional MRI, you get a nice spatial pattern of, of how, you know, what's responding in the brain. If you do electroencephalography, you'll get a nice temporal pattern of what's happening in the brain. But on the one hand, you have really poor time resolution. On the other hand, you have really bad space resolution. So how do you, how do you integrate these together into a, a, a common theories? And uh, you know we, we need to work on that, yeah. um, but I, I think the languages increasing formalisms are coming for describing this kind of stuff. So how 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 unified of a concept do you think language is, in terms of you talk about the brain doing language? Is that uh, how structured or unstructured? Is that one thing? Uh, or was this? I mean, does everybody <laughs> talk when they say I'm studying the neurobiology of language? Are they all doing this. Essentially the same thing, so we or have, kind of overlapping things? We have probably 1,500 people who have come to at least one meeting of the Society for Neurobiology and <laughs> Language. So you would get 1,500 answers to that question, I'm <laughs> sure. Um, and there are, the, the number of different fields that study language is, is enormous. You know, from your French department, to your linguistics department, to your anthropology department. Anthropology brought language research into, into the United States. Um, your sociology department, and you know, psycholinguistics is huge, and, and there's a field called neurolinguistics, um, and um, the the um, the neurobiology of language meeting and journal, which I will um, shamelessly advertise on this podcast. Uh, please submit papers to us, MIT <laughs> Press. Um, uh, they, um, they they encompass all these kinds of individuals. Um, there are ling linguists who who are very theoretically minded. And um, some of them, uh, in, in, my, in my conference that I, that I started, I don't run it anymore, but um, uh, in, in the Neurobiology of Language conference, um, they will take linguistic theory and say, I want to find elements of my formal linguistic model. I want to find elements from that model in the brain. To me, that's convoluted, but that's what they want to do. Um, and um, the same is true of psychologists. They'll say, oh, there's working memory. 
Uh, you know, yeah, of course there's working memory. But does that mean that working memory is, you know, is yeah. a place? Um, you know, working memory is a process. And that process is instantiated by a complex computational system, um, which, um, you know, in includes in, in the human a lot of different parts of the brain. Um, you know, I, I, it's possible that... Um, yeah. So, so one of the reasons why, you know, just sticking with sort of the idea of like what is the neuroscience of language, is that this this conference in particular has created a forum for people doing birdsong research you know, uh, and um, looking at vocalizations in mice and trying to find what does it mean to study language at the different levels and what you know. It, there's all kinds of levels, all kinds of interactions. I study bilingualism, get even more complicated, right? So then, so. Um, I think that's a great question. That's sort of an umbrella for a giant area. Bilingualism is a particularly interesting topic because um, the, the reductionist approach that we've had in science for a long time, um, which I, uh, as you guys know, because we've talked all day, I don't favor some aspects of that, um, has led to us studying things that don't exist very much. So in my research in, neuro in neurology, I, uh, I, I've studied stroke. And if I wanted to get a grant funded through the federal government, I had to find patients who had a single stroke in a single hemisphere with no other damage anywhere else, who hopefully didn't have hypertension, didn't have diabetes. Um, <laughs> these, are, these are like the rarest birds on the face of the earth. They don't exist. And likewise, if you look at the world's population, what percentage of the world population is monolingual? Okay, it is a vanishingly small percentage of the world's population. So to view bilingualism as something that is different from the norm is 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 not something consistent with in what I in my view how we should pursue how we should be pursuing science, which is to study things that are actually exist, and it's dirty. What actually yeah. exists is dirtier um, than these um, than these. Uh, um, so-called clean model model system ideas, and it's just a, it's just a, a belief I have. I, I don't completely know how to do it. Although I did mention, uh, maybe in, I'm not sure I mentioned in the talk, but I mentioned to the students when I spoke with students today um, that um, my former student who is really is leading in, in this idea of of trying to um, study language in the ecological setting. Um, in the real world without designing things in a, in a very um, constrained way um, to, to be something that we never do. Um, so, so what about starting, kind of turning it upside down and starting rather than with behavior, starting with the actual information flow and structural relationships between areas that communicate with one another in the brain? And you've done a lot of work on, for example, resting networks and how, how, could this give us sort of levels of understanding what these nodes may actually be and how many of them there are and how they, what the dynamics are and then sort of define those and then try to build behavior back into that. I mean, what, what, what is the sort of... So I love, I, love your I love your question because um, 
the, the Society for Neurobiology Language and the journal and all of this ecosystem that I'm trying to, that I've been trying to develop and I'm, 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 I'm shamelessly advertising is an attempt to bring behavioral scientists who are going one direction and brain scientists going the other direction um, to meet and to go both directions and in fact to take people who are psychologists, neurobiologists, linguists and have because th those are the disciplines where we train people now, speech language pathology, mm -hmm. those are the disciplines where we train people now to have us together train a whole new cadre of, of young people who go bi-directionally. So absolutely, I mean, we know something about the white matter uh, tracks in the brain, and we can study those at different levels. Um, the, um, the, the white matter tracks in the brain are not point-to-point -point connections like wires in an in a, uh, electrical device. Um, the white matter pathways in the brain are like superhighways, where we have exits and entrances all over. So to say there's a connection between the you know, inferior parietal lobule, posterior part of the supramarginal gyrus, and the frontal lobe um, is missing the fact that some of those fibers are going to the prefrontal cortex, some of them are going to lateral ventral pre prefrontal cortex, some are going to uh, dorsal prefrontal cortex. And yes, we can study these pathways and try to make heads or tails um, about how these pathways are instantiating the kinds of behaviors that we're interested in. In fact, the fact that these, some of these um, so-called uh, language pathways actually do have projections to the superior and anterior parts of the, of the frontal lobe um, mean that um, you know, perhaps there are uh, certain kinds of, of general cognitive skills that are, that are being used in language processing um, that are not any sort of language-specific process, but are general, general cognitive processes. So yes, we can, go, we can go both directions. You look at the, uh, the pathways, the inferior uh, um, uh, occipital frontal pathway uh, through, the, through the temporal lobe, and that, that originates in the visual system. So is that pathway, some, uh, there's an investigator who wrote an article about how that pathway is very important for understanding um, nouns. And I asked him, is it better for, under is that pathway more involved? when you're trying to understand visualizable objects than non-visualizable objects? Is, is that pathway important to understand the word um, happy? Um, or is that pathway much more important for understanding the word apple, you know, where I have a, a visual image of the thing? So um, yes, you can go that direction, as you can go from a lot of psychologists go from behavior. They say, where's working memory? How do I find working memory? What's selective attention? Now, where, what's the mechanism for selective attention in certain circumstances? So you go both directions. So, but there's also a language issue there, a vocabulary issue there, because you're describing pathways, and pathways don't necessarily mean networks. So can you say something about what the word network means because there are level there are multiple networks overlaid on a single set of pathways right or, or yeah, yeah they don't again there's yeah so there, can you there's not only multiple about? networks but there's multiple networks that even change over time right so there's some notions that in fact the networks that do language are in fact changing over time as you process um, but what is a network? A network has a, a, a pretty you know, formal mathematical definition. It's a set of nodes and connections among those nodes. So what is a network? Uh, 
Facebook is a network. Twitter is a network. Um, the, the most famous one for analogies is the uh, airline system. And in fact, in the airline system, you have some of the phenomena that we're, that we're using by analogy in the brain. Um, things like modules and hubs and all that kind of stuff. Um, so those are networks. Um, then um, how, um, so, so that's a network. And th the next question is, um, when we talk about the brain, we typically talk about um, structural networks and we talk about functional networks. And the functional networks are these correlational statistical relations across the nodes. Um, the nodes in the brain, depending on your level of scientific inquiry, can be a, a neuron and it can be a region. And it depends on your level of description. Those are, those are the nodes of the network. And they can be connected with direct pathways. A lot of the PhD students I was talking to today, um, they, they were teaching me about uh, monosynaptic GABAergic connections across the two auditory cortices. You know, that would be a structural connection in a network. Okay, um, and um, but at the same time, you know, other people. I think uh, some of the students who are studying language, we're talking about functional connections across um, across recording electrodes in an EEG, um, and and um, so you, you have you, the, talking about a network doesn't necessarily commit to what the what the nodes and the connections so of that network are. Can I ask a slightly more concrete? Yeah. A version of that question. So, like, if cytoarchitectonists, without any knowledge of function at all, describe these regions Absolutely. in the brain. And we, there are a couple of different cytoarchitectonic schemes, but they all kind of agree in that yeah. regions are about the same region. So, I imagine when you say region in the brain, you're talking about cytoarchitectonic region. You may not be, but I'm imagining they are. So, so if, and those are well-established. We know them, and maybe we don't memorize them anymore. One time people did, but a lot of people still know those. And now, let's say we didn't know that, and we just started doing functional MRI, and we developed these correlational structures, and we would say, oh, these correlational structures suggest that this little place in the brain ought to be called a, a, you know, a node. Mm -hmm. well, would they line up? Do they line up? So no. That, <laughs> no, they don't. So, um, so um, it turns out I'm married to a neuroanatomist. So in our lab, we have always used um, actual anatomical regions, and we get sometimes frustrated by other regions that are made up by psychologists. Um, and um, without naming names, uh, there's one called SPT in the temporal lobe. There's one called TPJ. Um, that's at the temporoparietal TPJ junction. And if you want to go, and if you want to, if you want to go back, if you really want to go back, and this was uh, this was first named by a neurobiologist, also dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Okay, so um, there are a bunch of these things. The um, the um, let's just take TPJ for an example because everyone talks about that now in the literature, and it's considered very important for a bunch of functional networks having to do with uh, theory of mind and other kinds of things. And um, basically people just, um, uh, typically um, psychologists, cognitive neuroscientists, did a lot of experiments doing certain behaviors and they found that this area was reliably active during these behaviors. And so they said this is an important region of the brain. 
And if you do a, a search on Google Scholar or Scopus or PubMed of TPJ, I bet you find a thousand papers now. Um, but if you do that search um, uh, uh, 25 years ago, maybe there's someone who described it a long time ago, but you'll find one or two. So it's a, it is a subset of some larger Brodel structure, or it's a set, a superset of several it's, Brodel it's, structures? It's, it spills halfway into I, one I, and halfway into another? I'm, I'm not sure about all the regions I mentioned, um, but I, I believe that um, they do not coincide with at least cytoarchitectonic. Uh -huh. Whether you can find a chemoarchitectonic, whether you can use amidocytochemistry and do something fancy, and there is some, you know, anatomical legitimacy to these areas, I don't know. I, I would, I'm not a, I'm not a, so a little bit of a disappointment, <laughs> I think, that would be a disappointment to Bragal. If, if you had asked him, someday people will look and say, what is the correlational structure of activity in the brain? And Brogal would probably say, well, I think areas that are in the same ones in my, with neurons within my region are going to have something in common. It should be correlated with each other, and less so with, uh, when you cross the boundary. And the boundaries are pretty sharp. And, but it didn't turn out that way. Is that, would you say, in general, it doesn't turn out that way? Um, uh, I don't think that's what I was saying. Oh. Um, um, you know, I don't think we know the answer. I don't know the answer to your question. Maybe somebody. Knows I don't the think we have the. Um, we don't have the precision to define the boundaries of these functional areas, right? I mean, so we the can't bold really signals are are too big or too small. Because some big. of them really look tiny. The little tiny yeah. red dot. Well, do you know what a well, you know what a bold result is? A bold result is the complex statistical result of comparing um, activity when you do something with activity when you, it's a comparison among a couple of things. Now, um, it, it typically was called subtraction. Usually it's now, it's a complex regression or something, but it relates, it relates one set of circumstances to another set of circumstances. And so I've actually given a talk where I showed um, that the, um, the one small area in the uh, occipitotemporal region was active during a very complex reading task. And I showed, I proved it, and then the rest of my talk, I gave this to the philosophy of neuroscience meeting, I gave this talk. The rest of the talk, I showed what happens when you alter statistical thresholds, when you change the nature of correlation, when you do different uh, analyses, and show that in fact, this is the product of, um, of, a, of, a, of a statistic. And, and, um, and a statistic that is um, it, it can can be somewhat skewed the way you want. There was a there was a very important paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences about two years ago that questioned a lot of functional MRI experiments um, because some of them were not adhering to um, uh, proper uh, objective statistical uh, methods, um, and so. Um, uh, but, but, but nevertheless, uh, a, a, a functional brain image, a bold image, task-dependent bold image of the brain is a terrain. Okay? It's a terrain. There's huge mountains and there's valleys and there's a lot of stuff that's moderately high. If you, if you look at every voxel in the brain and you look at the bold um, effect in those regions and a task-dependent nature using this method. So you have this whole terrain. If you, you know, if you just chop off the top of the highest mountain, you get localized function. 
if you, if you show everything, you get the kind of pictures I was showing today, which is everything's active. And so how do you, how do you assess that? There are very good statisticians who have some approaches to it, but nevertheless, um, you really, you, you really um, don't know what the exact right level of granularity ought to be. Yeah. There's statisticians who come here and tell you they knew, um, but, but I, I'm not sure it's that clear. So kind of returning to, to Charlie's idea, though, so could you take the inverse and look at um, histology and then try to map bold signal onto a specific architectonic region that, that is unique in its, in its structure and have only that area yeah, um, sure. active? Like, the, could, could you actually define the same sure. boundaries of one of the BA regions? Yeah, but sure. But um, just because a particular area of the brain has a similar architectonic structure doesn't necessarily mean that all parts of that area are participating in the same kinds of connectivity. Yeah. And that's, that's been demonstrated. If you look at... Um, uh, Bro look at Broadman area, what is it, 40 is the supermarginal yeah. gyrus? So if you look at supermarginal gyrus, it's become clear in language research that the anterior and posterior parts of that, mm -hmm. of that are, are participating in different kinds of networks. And in fact, um, Rodal used a, it wasn't a fancy statistical method, but it was the equivalent being done by his brain to to define those. And if you look at one edge versus the other of the same Brodal region, they look like they're neighbors. So there's kind of a gradient running across a lot of those regions. And mm -hmm. at some point he had to say, no, I'm just going to draw the line there. Okay. And, yep. and every student who sits down and looks at brains to learn the Brodal areas complains to the professor that that's where the line is, but I don't see that line. <laughs> I could put it there as easily as I put Well, it's there. also the same if you look at the layers. I mean, look at the, the layered structure. You take somebody like me who's not very visual. I can't tell layer one, layer two, layer three, um, because they, you know, they they're um, they they have some interrelationship and they differ a little bit across regions and they and they're a little. Um, they're mixed together a little bit. It's not just a clear break. If you look at sensor, primary sensory and primary motor, if you want an area of the brain that actually does more or less specific functions, go to primary sensory motor regions. You know, there the, the mapping of function to structure is a little more straightforward. You know, uh, you, you can't deny that there's parts of the visual cortex that are pretty good at moving bars, okay? Um, yet at the same time, you take an area, uh, regions like super, uh, areas 3940, supermarginal and angular gyrus, which are high order association areas, and to say what kind of functions they do is, is quite complicated. But if you look at the inter intersection between primary motor and primary sensory cortex, there's some inter interdigitation there, and it's not a clean break even something so clear as sensory and motor. So, yeah, no, I agree with you. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was, I was going to, um, I was going to comment on, on something that I find interesting and, and frustrating at the same time as language researchers, that a lot of times, like some of your conclusions at the end of your talk, um, the need to look at evolutionary data, the, you know, the need to consider dynamics in a system, they seem so obvious to most neuroscientists, I think, and yet we keep, we're saying this like we're reinventing the wheel, it feels like sometimes. But I wanted you to, I just want to like you to speak to how frustrating it is that 
in the language field, you still have to say these things. Like, <laughs> you still have to convince people that this is um, that this is real or important. Yeah. So um, I think the I mean the language community is so diverse, and um, people who study language have uh, a whole bunch of different interests. So if you're interested in studying how languages in the world are, how the languages themselves evolved, how they're organized, um, how their grammars work, um, how their lexica were developed, and all, all these kinds of things, then you have a specific set of questions, a specific sort, a set of interests. If you're interested in the biology of the brain, you have a different set of interests. If you're interested in behavior, you're a psychologist, psycholinguistics, um, you have a different set of interests. And when, when, um, when, when you impose one set of uh, uh, um, approaches on to another, you get into a conflict. And I think that's the conflict you see. To, to people like you and me, the fact that uh, understanding the monkey auditory system might be helpful for understanding human language uh, uh, understanding, that makes sense to us. Um, but if you believe that um, uh, language evolved in such a way that there is a language organ that is unique to human beings and it can be studied um, apart from its interactions with other things, you're, you're going to end up with a whole bunch of different questions and different conclusions. And that group has dominated the study of language in America since uh, syntactic structures in 1957. And, um, and since uh, aspects of theory syntax in 1965. It is now giving way, thankfully. Um, and um, I know for a fact, because I was asked to help with the reading list for the course, I know that Tom Bever and Noam Chomsky are teaching a course in neurobiology of language this wow. semester, a <laughs> seminar course. And they asked me for a reading list. Then I said, I don't think you'll pay attention to anything on my reading list because we come from such different directions. Yeah. Um, uh, but, but things are changing. Things are changing. The idea that you can't go from abstract theory to brain is, is I think, gaining some traction. If not among um, my generation or your generation, I think the young people in laboratories are, are asking these questions because they're much more open-minded, they're much less stuck, they're much less disciplinary. And so, um, and that's the Neurobiology of Language conference that you talked about. I was told the other day, because I'm always getting criticisms about the conference because I'm soliciting them, <laughs> that you know the best part of those conferences is the posters. Well, who does posters? You know, it's not the senior faculty are invited to give these plenaries. You know, it's, it's the, the grad students and postdocs from around the world and some faculty too, but it's the posters. And so I, I think our, you know, some of what you, you call frustration, and I, I, I just call, uh, you know, sort of a, a inner, you know, a, a, dis, a disciplinary disconnect. Um, I think some of that's going to give way, and it's going to be our students and our students' students who do it. Um, and uh, you know, I, I, I hope we're in a, you know, a bit of a paradigm shift. So there's something funny about the evolution of language. There's something. I mean, if you maybe it doesn't bother real evolution experts, but it's something that bothers me. I'm not a real evolution expert. And that is, I kind of think of evolution as a little bit gradual. Mm -hmm. And so I would expect there would be monkeys whose language capability is like a two-year-old child. 
And then there would be monkeys whose language capabilities are like a six-year-old child. You know, if, if language develops gradually and ontology recapitulates phylogeny and all that kind of slogans are true, then where's the monkey with the toddler's vocabulary? Well, I, I have a question for you, because uh, I don't know the evolution very well. Uh, but um, are there um, humans or humanoids mm -hmm. who had much more simple language? Because I, when I was at the University of Chicago, I used to have an ongoing debate with one of the social psychologists about whether the um, evolution of the frontal lobe was driven by sociality or driven by language development. And um, I don't know what he concluded, but I concluded we were both right. Um, because, in fact, the, the language is, is a, an important component of our sociality. And so I don't know if there are humans or humanoids that antedated Homo sapiens who did have more primitive types of language. Um, given what you said and, and, um, and what makes sense, commonsensically, one would postulate there would be. Um, and, and that would go hand in hand with the evolution of this huge uh, frontal cortical um, mass that we have. So that would be a postulate. And, and I, I think the difference between you know, monkeys and and humans that, that are, are non-human primates, it may not be monkeys we're talking about, but non-human primates, um, has to do with the, um, those frontal structures and the kinds of working memory and other things that they can support. That's a theory, but I, I don't know if it's true. Someone listening may call in, right? <laughs> but it seems like those are questions that can sort of be asked using some of these non-task-based network uh, yeah. low frequency sorts of thing. And you know, the, some of these intuitions that are coming out of looking at segregation versus integration across networks are super interesting over the lifespan and uh, you know, with and without yeah. uh, uh, speech therapy following aphasias. I mean, the, these ideas of how we understand how networks are interconnected with one another and how segregation serves one set of capacities versus integration. And you know, just intuitively I would have thought that integration would be would sort of lead to more capacity, but it's it's totally not in, in the literature, right? Integration tends to be associated with aging and cognitive decline and. Well, the um, yeah the um, yeah one of the most successful um, network measure, measures has been segregation uh, versus integration, uh, modularity or community structure versus you know less of that kind of stuff, and. Um, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's. I, I don't think you need one or the other. I think you, you need segregation in some parts of your of your um, network function and integration in other parts to make the to make things work well. And so the the papers that are out there, from my understanding, is um, in some cases of aging, you have you know um, um, more um, more segregation, more integration. Depends on the system and the part of the brain, parts of the brain that are that are interacting. So I, I don't think it's so clear. Yeah, well, yeah. Anyway, a lot of the network stuff you need, there's a balance between those two things. There's a sweet spot that you have to be in, and you can fall on either either side of that. That's a problem, right? If you don't not talk into enough, then it's not so good. And if everybody's going together, you're not doing very th much complicated either. So it seems like this is this is part of the new syntax, right? Of understanding what the how you're defining these different networks that are sort of overlaid on one another and how they interact with each other and 
relation to that, that, that's behavior the and graph, capacities. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, the graph that. theory yeah. language that's mm -hmm. been popular the last five or ten years. Yeah. And using that graph theory language, there, there are lots of these concepts that are, have been very useful. Um, they're, they're static is the problem. And uh, those, uh, that, what you call integration segregation uh, in different, in different subnetworks, those things probably change over time while you're even doing a task. Um, and, uh, and we need to understand those better. Yeah. Or even what comes on the network first, right? We don't have any sense of that. We have a static picture of these areas, and we don't even know if they're coming on in parallel or coming on independently, or one after the other. Because we're so typically that. averaging over, uh, over time. Yeah. So that's going to take new tools to sort of yeah. resolve. Yeah, 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 and they're coming. They're coming. There are a lot of new tools coming. Um, um, I, I personally believe, and this is going to be instantiated uh, if I'm lucky, in my role as, as dean, um, I would like to build a group um, at, at UT Dallas that focuses on um, theoretical, mathematical, computational neuroscience. Um, the 20th century was the century of physics, and in part that's because we had incredible mathematical models in physics. Um, by the late 20th century, those models got a little bit crazy, but um, and not, and, um, I'm not sure they were that useful by the end of the 20th century. But we don't have really great um, theoretical uh, um, work in neuroscience. We have we have we have a lot, but uh, but but it's it's a field that needs a lot more, um, and we need some common principles, and we need some some real uh, theory and. Uh, I, I, I'm hoping to convince my uh, neurobiology heads and, and interested parties that that would be something we would like to hire. So, yeah, you can send CVs if you hear this. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is excellent. Thank you, Steve Small, for joining us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thanks. Thank you. Mm -hmm.